Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, and once again talking with you about practical issues related to ministry leadership. This week, the podcast is a little different in that I'm going to speak about moral purity for ministry leaders. I actually delivered a message to the seminary community about this issue, and so uh, while I don't normally preach on the podcast, this week we're going to make an exception. So what you're going to hear next is my message uh, to Gateway Seminary on moral purity for ministry leaders. Open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where in just a moment I'll read a passage of Scripture that's going to be the foundation uh, for today's message. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Sexual abuse, sexual harassment, and sexual perversity are permeating our culture and occupying our attention by all media. Just a quick internet search reveals in the past few months more than 50 prominent men and a few women who've been accused of these behaviors. Not to mention the case of Dr. Larry Nasser, who now has been accused by more than 250 young athletes of sexual abuse. Now, we lament the behavior of people in the media, entertainment, politics, and medical fields. We lament their behavior. But as ministry leaders, we need to get our own house in order. In the past two weeks, I've been personally involved with two churches who are working through the aftermath of a pastoral leader confessing or being caught in sexually inappropriate behavior. So this morning, I want to speak to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about moral purity for ministry leaders. And I want to do more than challenge you about this subject. I want to teach you some specific principles that will help you to maintain your moral purity as you move forward in ministry leadership. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. This passage of Scripture begins by teaching us that moral purity is a command. Back into the text with me. The text begins in verse 1 by saying, We ask and encourage. 
These are synonyms and words of prompting or promoting. We ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus, as you are doing, it says, do so even more. And so the passage begins by Paul saying, you've heard of the importance of moral purity and you've been practicing it, but now I want to challenge you to go to a higher level of practice in this area. He said, I, you've been following the instructions for us on how you should live and how you should please God in these areas. Now notice how often uh, the Godhead is mentioned in this text. Verse 1, this is in the Lord Jesus. Continuing uh, verse 2, through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, this is God's will. And then verse 8, this is in the Holy Spirit. The mentioning of Jesus twice and God and the Spirit in this passage underscores the true source of authority for these teachings. God is the motivation for our sanctification and in the context of this passage, He is the motivator of our uh, the motivator of, and, the, and the sustainer of the issue, on the issue of moral purity. But beyond all of that, beyond asking and encouraging and imploring to remember what you've been taught and do even more, and beyond all of that and the emphasis on the Lord Jesus and God and the Spirit prompting this instruction, Paul culminates this section with verse 2 by saying, now he writes, we obey the commands that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. The word command here is much stronger than the words ask and encourage at the beginning of the passage. This word is a word describing an order. And it's the same word used by a military officer giving an order. So putting this together, Paul says, I've asked you and I've encouraged you in the Lord Jesus, to follow the instructions I gave you about these issues of moral purity. And now I'm reminding you that these words I spoke to you came from the Lord Jesus and God and through the Spirit. And now I'm telling you even more than that, I'm commanding you, I'm commanding you to maintain your moral purity. Now this teaches us that maintaining moral purity is a basic instruction related to Christian living. But beyond that, Maintaining moral purity is also a command from Jesus. Moral purity is not a legalistic or stultifying or enslaving behavior left over from the Victorian era. The demand for moral purity is not that which is made by puritanical preachers who are trying to stamp out fun in the membership. The call for moral purity is a command from the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you hearing this this morning? In the firmness and the strength of what he's trying to communicate to us. So moral purity is a command. Second, the passage uh, uh, then underscores that moral purity is a process. Now in this text, there's a general process of sanctification described and then some specific steps underscored about what it means to maintain moral purity. First, look at the general process of sanctification, verse 3. For this is God's will, your sanctification. And then drop to verse 4. In holiness and honor, and some translations actually say in sanctification and honor. And then drop to verse 7, where it says, God has called us to live in holiness. And again, some translations actually use the word sanctification. 
So there is throughout this passage, using the word sanctification and holiness as synonyms, there is throughout this passage a general call to sanctification, to the continual growth and progress in the gospel as it shapes your life and character more toward the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the context of these general statements, there are then three specific steps that are underscored about the important, that we can take that will help us assure our moral purity. The first one is in verse 3. It says in verse 3, keep away from sexual immorality. Now the word keep away could be translated abstain or avoid or shun or flee. These are strong words. These are proactive words. These are words telling you that it is your responsibility to to do something, to stay away from immorality. Abstain, avoid, shun, flee. In the translation I'm reading, keep away. Keep away from sexual immorality. And then verse 4, the second step. You must control your own body. Notice what it says. Each of you must know how to control his own body in in holiness and honor. This This phrase means to control yourself. In contrast, the verse goes on to say, to the lustful manner the Gentiles lived, as you see in the next phrases. Now, this is not a new problem. What Paul is saying this, you're responsible to control your body. In contrast to the culture in which you're living, he's describing it by saying how the Gentiles live, The challenge has always been to control ourselves in the face of a culture that says, do anything but control yourself. This is not a new problem. Quoting from Dr. Martin's commentary on 1 Thessalonians, he wrote, Much behavior that was tolerated among the Gentiles was considered immoral in the church. The casual use of prostitutes and the practice of ritual sexual intercourse in certain cults was common in Hellenistic cities. Far from limiting sex to the bounds of marriage, it was common for a man of means to have a mistress, and it also was acceptable for him to make use of his slaves for sexual gratification. Entering the church made such behavior taboo. Obviously, Gentile converts to Christianity had to struggle with the demands of what was to them a new sexual ethic while continuing to live in a permissive society. One of the great challenges for a new convert, no doubt, was living according to the truth that God's Word, not Hellenistic norms, must govern the behavior of God's followers. The application to the sexual behavior of the believer today is obvious, and the challenge has not changed. Living sanctified lives still means living counterculturally in many instances. Believers live by God's standards regardless of how they compare to societal norms. It was a problem in the first century. It's a problem in ours. But we must control ourselves in contrast to the culture around us. And then third, in verse 6, the Bible says, one must not transgress against or take advantage of a brother or sister. The phrase transgress against could also be translated with the words defraud or misuse are selfishly used. So the phrase says you must not defraud or misuse or selfishly use another brother or sister and by doing so transgress against them. Now having reviewed these three steps from Scripture, let me now talk about them very specifically as I 
believe we can apply them today. Maintaining moral purity is a part of your sanctification. In, this verse, in these verses, it's tucked into the context of a broader description of sanctification. And as I've said, it includes these practical steps. Keep away from sexual immorality, the Bible says. I say, avoid immoral and potentially immoral situations. Two applications I'll share with you this morning on each of these. First, manage, <clears throat> manage ministry relationships appropriately. Now, in a previous generation, there was something that became popular among evangelicals called the Billy Graham Rule. Billy Graham established early on in his ministry that he would not uh, find himself and did not want anyone in his team to find themselves alone with a person of the opposite sex, in their case and in their culture, it was mostly men with women, uh, in private settings where questions might be raised about their behavior. While I, under, while I appreciate that standard, and I certainly value the principle behind the standard, that rule is archaic for our generation. We must go even beyond that rule in our day. One of the most troubling circumstances I've dealt with in my time as president was a male youth pastor who asked for counsel about a male youth group member approaching him and confessing his sexual attraction to that youth pastor. In a world in which homosexuality is approved in almost every way by our culture, it's naive to think that we can manage our relationships thinking only of them as men-women relationships moving forward. And so when I say manage ministry relationships appropriately, I offer you this counsel. No secret meetings. No secret meetings. Now you may say, but what about privacy and confidentiality of conversation? Privacy and confidentiality do not equal secrecy. For example, in the president's office upstairs, there's a window. And that window is available to my assistant who can look into my office at any time. I can have a private meeting with you in my office in which we discuss confidential matters, but I will not meet with you in secret. Do you understand the difference? It is possible to have meetings with careful conversations or with confidential conversations that handle delicate issues, but do not meet with anyone in secret. What do I mean? I mean, if you find yourself having to meet someone so that no one else knows about it or meet someone in a place that no one else knows about, you are stepping toward a, a, a moral mistake and you may be closer to it than you ever imagined. I would also advise you not only to have no secret meetings, but to, to be very careful in your conversations as a ministry leader. The Bible speaks about wholesome words coming out of our mouths. Off-color jokes, sexual innuendo, and, and conversation that opens up, the, uh, opens up issues of sexual discussion in an inappropriate way need to be avoided by ministry leaders. And I'll go on and say a couple of other things because right now I'm making more enemies than I'm making friends. But I think it's important how you dress as a ministry leader. Dress like you're going to work. So that when people see you, they understand they're talking to someone who's speaking to them as a ministry professional, a person who understands that there is a need to maintain some decorum in the relationship. 
when you're talking to someone or meeting with them about a ministry opportunity or situation. Now, I'm not being legalistic about what that needs to look like. I'm simply saying how you present yourself matters to people, and it matters how they perceive you and what you want out of the relationship. And then I'll go a step farther and say that I've had a policy for many years that I do not receive or exchange gifts with people who work close to me. You may say, well, that's really legalistic. It may be. But I don't want anything to be misconstrued between my assistants and the people who work in my office. There are no special favors that I'm giving and none that I'm expecting by private gifts or secret gifts or gifts that I give to people who work around me. If I give a gift, I give it to the whole seminary. You may say, well, those don't come very often. I know, but that's the way it works. I'm not advocating a legalistic set of rules that will protect you in every circumstance or situation, but I am saying this, manage your ministry relationships appropriately. Be careful where you meet. Be careful what you say. Be careful how you dress. Be careful what you give and what you expect in return. Manage relationships appropriately. And then second, manage, this is about avoiding this first step, avoiding, keeping away from, shunning, abstaining from immorality. The second suggestion I would make this morning is to manage your entertainment choices carefully. Entertainment is the entry drug for immoral behavior. It lowers your defenses. It dulls your senses. It makes you think things are appropriate that are not appropriate. Now, again, I'm not laying out a legalistic standard, but I am saying that what movies you watch, what television programs you consume, and what music you hear does impact your moral choices. I made a decision 40 years ago. 40 years ago. That I would not view R-rated movies. And I'm the only 59-year-old man you know that's probably never seen an R-rated movie in a theater, on a television, in any capacity. Why is that? Because I made a decision 40 years ago that I was going to limit what I saw in terms of nudity and sexuality and do everything I could to confine those images to my wife so that she does not have to compete with anyone I'm looking at or anyone I'm imagining or anyone I am voyeuristically enjoying engaging in a sexual activity. And I also didn't ever want my daughter to grow up thinking she had to live up to what her, what her father enjoyed on a screen. Now, I've missed some good movies along the way, I'm sure. But I have also missed countless hundreds if not thousands of pornographic images that aren't in my mind and I thank God for the decision I made and whatever it's cost me has been small in the gain I've had of not exposing myself to that kind of media avoid immorality and immoral situations number two the Bible says manage your body or control your body and I would say it this way control your physical urges Make your body do what you want it to do, not what it wants to do. In other words, discipline your body by what you eat and how you exercise and how you express it sexually, but I'll give you one very specific application of this related to your moral purity, and that is discipline where your body goes. There's a case in the media right now of a pastor in a southern state 
who is now the pastor of a megachurch. But more than 20 years ago, while he was a youth pastor, he committed an act of sexual abuse and sexual indiscretion with a teenager in the youth group of his church. When, he, when this all came out now, some 20 years later, and he's having to deal with it all again, I was interested in the first sentence of his description of what happened. He wrote, We were in a car on a lonely road. Why? Why is a 20-year-old, a 20-something-year-old youth pastor and a 17-year-old girl in a car alone on a lonely road? I was once talking to a man who said, I really struggle with strip clubs. I say, stop going to them. He said, what do you mean? I said, when your pickup is driving down the street, does it just miraculously and mysteriously whip the wheel into the strip club parking lot? Or do you dial it in with your hand, spinning that wheel as fast as you can? Control where your body goes. The Bible says get control of your body. You tell it where to go. You tell it what to watch. You tell it what to drink. You tell it what to eat. You tell it what to engage. Tell your body where to go. Stay off dark roads in private vehicles with people you don't need to be with in that setting. And then... When it comes to controlling your physical urges, learn to recognize temptation when it's small, not after it's raging. One of my saddest times of pastoral ministry was during my church planting days in Oregon. I led our teenagers on a youth retreat. That wasn't the sad part. It might have been for them. It wasn't for me. Bear with me. I led our youth on a youth retreat in which we talked about sexuality. That was the theme of the retreat. And I laid out for them a number of issues and steps and processes to help them manage their sexuality as teenagers. About a year later, maybe a little longer, uh, one of the older girls in the group uh, became pregnant. And her parents asked me to come to their home and meet with her and with them to sort out a strategy of how to go forward. When I did that, she said in our conversation about her situation and how to go forward, she said, Pastor Jeff, I remember what you taught us at the youth retreat. I said, well, what, what part do you remember? She said, well, I remember that when you were at the youth retreat, you said that when we're first sexually tempted, that it's like a train going up a long, steep incline, that we start slowly as we feel those temptations, but those temptations are climbing, and so is our desire. But then she said, at the retreat, you told us that when you hit the top of that ridge and you start down the other side, you'll find it almost impossible to satisfy your sexual urges in that moment. And she said, Pastor Jeff, when my boyfriend and I were starting to engage in our sexual relationship, I remembered that illustration and I thought, I've got to stop the train. I've got to stop the train. But I kept thinking each time we got together, we could get, let it go a little bit farther. Until finally, she said, one day, we peeked over the top of the ridge. And like you said, there was no stopping after that. Sexual urges, sexual temptation, sexual desire, stop it when it first starts. 
Get control of it in the first moment. Walk away quicker. Get control of your body. And then number three, the Bible says don't defraud or don't transgress or don't misuse another. And I would say it this way, protect others, particularly the weak and the vulnerable. And two steps on this one as well. First, resist every temptation to use others to gratify your sexual desires. Don't defraud. Don't misuse. Don't take advantage of. This means voyeurism, pornography, and emotionally vulnerable people are not play toys for you to satisfy your urges. A young man once said to me, what's wrong with going to a strip club? I said, well, the biggest problem for me is that's someone's sister, someone's daughter. And his face dropped and he said, wow, I've got a sister. <laughs> I don't want to do that. He got the point. Other people, especially the weak and the vulnerable, the discouraged or the depressed, the desperate, people who are behaving and performing in sexual ways for reasons that we may not fully understand but certainly reveal something about them that's hurting. We do not take advantage of that. Voyeurism, pornography, and taking advantage of emotionally vulnerable people is not acceptable for us. We can't defraud or transgress or misuse people this way. And then, secondly, protect others by implementing policies to protect people from yourself and from others. This means personnel policies in your organization, child care policies in your church, victim protection policies in place in your organization where you work. It means that you take the initiative as a ministry leader to say, our church, our organization, we will have policies in place and we will enforce those policies to protect people from predatory activity from others as long as they're a part of this organization. It won't happen at our church and it won't happen on our, at our organization. As best you can do as a ministry leader, say it will not happen on my watch that anyone gets, a take, gets taken advantage of by another person. So the Bible's specific. It says, keep away from sexual immorality. Control your own body. Don't transgress against anyone else. And I've said it, avoid immoral situations. Control your physical urges and protect others. Now, the passage then concludes with really a stern warning. It says that moral impurity has serious consequences. Now look back at the text in verse 6. It says in the middle of the verse, the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. Now I like this translation a lot because I like the word avenger better than judge. In the context, the word avenger describes a civil judgment rather than a criminal judgment. That's why I like it better than judge, because when we think of judge, we think of criminal court. But listen carefully. In criminal court, you're either guilty or you're innocent. 
But in civil court, you can be a little bit guilty and a little bit innocent. Because in civil court, the judge, in this case the avenger, has the privilege of making things right without declaring absolute guilt. So you might be fined $1,000, you might be fined $100,000, you might be fined a million dollars. Because there's a sense of trying to bring about a fairness or a balance or of you getting the consequences for what you've done even though you may not be ultimately fully guilty. Do you see the difference? This passage of Scripture and this illustration Paul is using rests on a civil understanding of judgment, not a criminal understanding. All that to say... When you, when you live an immoral lifestyle, at whatever capacity you live it, Paul says, judgment will come in proportion to what you've been doing. The Lord is an avenger. And then he underscores that God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness in verse 7. This emphasizes again that God is the one making the statement. He's the one who calls us to holiness. And then verse 8 underscores this even more when it says, The person who rejects this does not reject man, but God. Listen, immorality is not rebellion against man-made standards, but it's rebellion against God himself. And then he underscores it even more by saying, And you do all this in face of the God who gave you the Holy Spirit. Meaning that immorality is inconsistent with the character and indwelling guidance of the Holy Spirit. So these warnings are serious at the end of the passage. Paul says this, Immorality will be judged, not in a guilty, not guilty kind of way, but more in a civil kind of way. In other words, you'll get the consequences you earn by the behavior you demonstrate. And he says, take this so seriously because these instructions, these commands are not just man's ideas, but they came from God. And when you reject them, you're rejecting God, and you're rejecting the internal work of the Holy Spirit who's trying to prompt you toward holiness. Well, what does this mean? Well, it means that immorality will bring about inevitable, devastating consequences. In Proverbs chapter 5, there is a passage of Scripture which summarizes what some of these consequences look like. Let me just mention them and use the Proverbs to help us understand. First of all, immorality will leave you broken and alone. Proverbs 5, chapter 3 says this, Though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she's as bitter as wormwood, and as sharp as a double-edged sword. One pastor that I know personally who uh, committed adultery with a member uh, uh, in his church ultimately found himself living in a small room with a cot and a sink and a bathroom down the hall in Seattle, Washington. He was bitter, he was broken, and he was entirely alone. Immorality steals your strength and your health. In Proverbs chapter 5, continuing in verse 8, it says, Keep your way far from an adulteress. Don't go near the door of her house. 
Otherwise, you will give up your vitality to others and your years to someone cruel. At the end of your life, you will lament when your physical body has been consumed. Do you hear these warnings? Immorality will take your health and your vitality. Obviously, through sexually transmitted disease and the damage that illicit sexual activity can do to your body. One Christian physician, an OBGYN specialist who lives in the Midwest, not the West Coast, the Midwest told me that after 30 years of practice, he knew that over 50% of the women who came to him for medical care came because of some inappropriate sexual activity. Some of it done to them as they were victims, but most of it done by them as they made choices that were unhealthy. I have a friend whose sister has been the long-term mistress of an executive in a Midwest city. She was his mistress for almost 30 years. And during that time, kept waiting on him to fulfill his promise of leaving his wife and marrying her. He never did. And she wound up lonely, older, broken, and having significant loss of health and vitality, needing psychiatric care because of what this lifestyle choice did to her when he finally abandoned her. And then third, immorality consumes your money. Look at verse 10 of the same proverb. Strangers will drain your resources, and your hard-earned pay will end up in a foreigner's house. And then verse 14, I'm on the verge of complete ruin. The old country song is right. She got the gold mine. I got the shaft. (laughs) That's what happens. Somebody is going to get the profit from an immoral relationship, and it won't be you. You say, well, how will it take my money? Have you ever tried to maintain two lifestyles? Secret cell phones, hidden bank accounts to keep an immoral lifestyle going? Paid, off the, medical, paid the medical bills that came about because of what you did or what you did to others? Paid for the abortions? Paid for the babies born? Immorality will steal your money. And if it breaks up your home, it costs you the divorce, the alimony, the child support, and the counseling bills to clean up the mess in the next generation. And finally, immorality wrecks your reputation. Verse 14, I'm on the verge of complete ruin before the entire community. This is particularly true of us as ministry leaders. In both cases, I, well, excuse me, in one of the cases I've been recently dealing with, the pastor is so concerned about being restored, he does not fully grasp that he has forfeited his reputation forever in our community. And while some restoration is certainly possible, he will never overcome what he's done and how it's damaged the church where he serves. Your reputation is destroyed by immorality. So when I say the Bible, when the Bible says that the Lord is an avenger, this is what he means. 
he means that he will allow the inevitable devastating consequences of brokenness and loneliness and loss of strength and health and vitality and the consumption of your money and financial resources and the loss of your reputation. All of that will come crashing down on you as a ministry leader if you find yourself succumbing to the temptation to behave immorally. But then finally, the worst result of all is that immorality is you rejecting God. Now you're sitting there thinking, this is a serious sermon, and I know some people who need to hear it, but this could never happen to me. A number of years ago, there were scandals taking place among some prominent ministry leaders. They came one after the other in our country. I was a young pastor at the time. One of my best friends is a former Marine. He and I were talking after a worship service on a Sunday night, just walking down the hall toward my office, and I was lamenting, as I can do, and whining and complaining and griping about these, as I described them, idiots who had forfeited their ministry and damaged my reputation by their behavior. We stepped into my office, and I concluded my diatribe by saying this. What these men have done is despicable, and it can never happen to me. And my friend turned to me, swelled up into full marine mode, and he said these words, and I can almost exactly quote them because they burned into my soul. He said, those are the most dangerous words I have ever heard come out of your mouth. If you think it can't happen to you, it will. And then he said, watch yourself. And I say the same to you this morning. You may say, well, it could never happen to me. I hope somebody else that needs this sermon listens to me. And I say, Watch yourself. It can happen to any of us. Let's bow our heads together. As we bow our heads together this morning, I'd like to invite you to pray. And I'd like for you to pray first for yourself. Would you pray just now and say, Lord, I accept your command to live a morally upright life. And I pray that you will work in my life to give me the strength to make these choices to do what's right. You put that prayer into your, own, into your own words, but right now, will you pray for yourself? Asking God to give you the strength to maintain moral purity in the ministry. Now, will you pray for the person who's sitting beside you? Might be your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband. Might be a fellow faculty member or someone who works in the office next to you. But pray for them that they will take this message seriously and that they will have the strength to live a life of moral purity.
now will you pray for your pastors and your leaders of your local church? Call out to God and ask for him to give your pastors moral strength, wisdom and insight, the guidance to know how to live a morally upright life that they might not, by their choices, do damage to your life, to your church's fellowship, to your reputation in the community. finally, will you pray for me? My friend burned into my soul so many years ago those words, watch yourself. Pray for me that having preached to others, to paraphrase Paul, I might myself be disqualified. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us instruction in your word that's so specific, so clear, so practical. Now, Lord, I've tried to make it contemporary today by talking about today's world and today's practices. And the places where I've overstepped, Lord, erase those from our minds. But in the places where I've laid out a clear strategy, give every person in this room grace to start putting into practice that they might fix, that they might repair and they might avoid problems in this area. Thank you for hearing our prayer today, and we ask for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.